so Ephesians chapter 3, um, man, what a, this is one of the, the highlights of this book for me. The, the passage we're going to read tonight, it's just a prayer. It's this beautiful prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed, you know, uh, 2,000 years ago for this group of believers in the city of Ephesus. And it's my prayer for us tonight as well. But before we jump into it, I want to share a little bit of my story and kind of where I'm coming from and why I think this text kind of stirred up some stuff in me this week. Um, some of you may relate to this story. Some of you may not, and that's okay if you don't. Um, but so my story, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I was born to two parents who loved the Lord and taught me to obey God and got me to church every time that the doors were open and um, really laid the foundation for my faith. And through no fault of my parents, but more because of the culture I grew up in and the kind of the religious system that I grew up in, I, I kind of grew up really wanting and desiring to be what I would call a religious person. I wanted to be a good religious person. And here's what that meant to me. A religious person was someone who you know, it meant that I knew how to keep my act together by doing all the right things and staying away from all the wrong things. And this is my goal. Like I, I wanted to be that person that everyone looked at and thought, man, that guy's really got his stuff together. And so what I learned very early on is that I can feel that way if I project that to other people around me. And so on the outside, I learned very quickly the actions and the behaviors that I needed to do in order to feel like a good religious person. And so it meant that as a teenager, I knew that if the youth group was gonna have a get together, I was going to be there. I was gonna show up. Uh, and not only was I going to show up, but I st started to learn that I could get a lot of appreciation and praise if I, if I learned how to do some things. So I learned how to lead some worship songs, and I learned how to, to read the Word and to share some of what I thought about the Bible. And in all of these things, I felt like I was getting some applause and some sort of recognition, and I felt like I was getting closer to being that good religious person that I wanted to be. But it didn't just stop with, with church attendance and, and performance in church, but no, I also understood that morality mattered. And so I wanted to try really hard to be as moral of a person as I possibly could. And so this meant that while I was in high school, you know, while a lot of my friends were choosing to do things like, like drinking and smoking, doing drugs and sleeping around, these were things that I was like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to do those things. And so I, I didn't do them. And here's the thing, I was actually pretty good at trying to be the religious person. I, I had a decent amount of self-control. I had a decent amount of inner drive and pressure to try to be that person that I thought I was supposed to be. And so I worked really hard to build this image of who I thought it was God wanted me to be and who, what, what I thought it was everybody else wanted me to be. And then this thing happened, I went to college. And I get to college and things kind of started to change and fall apart a little bit. So I remember my freshman year, I had these guys uh, that I shared a suite with, and uh, I remember they invited me into their dorm room one night, and they said, hey, you get, we're going to start this prayer group. Why don't you come and be a part of it? And I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. So I get in there, but they weren't just talking the talk. Like, these guys were serious, and they started, like, confessing heart-level sins with each other, and they would start asking me, like, hey, Aaron, what, what, what does your heart do? What do you do with your eyes when a beautiful woman walks in the room? And I'm like, oh, What? Like, you want me to be honest about the things that go on in here, not just about the performance that I'm doing out here. And immediately I became face to face with some of the private sins that I had kept in here. You see, here's what I became convinced of, is that attempted public displays of perfection can often breed private lives of secret or hidden sin. And my private life of secret and hidden sin soon was being pulled out of me in front of my brothers and my brothers in Christ who were asking me these really direct questions. 
And for the first time, I started realizing that it wasn't just about the religious person that I projected to everyone out here, but what happened in my heart actually mattered. The thoughts that I had, the movies that I watched, the people I put myself around. It didn't matter if I held my act together, what was going on in here and in here really mattered. And soon I started realizing, man, I don't think I'm quite the person that I thought I was. And so I'm starting to wrestle with that and starting to feel some level of guilt because I'm starting to realize there's this sin that's clinging to me that I didn't really even know was there. And then this other thing happened where I started looking around and I started seeing people that on the outside, quite honestly, weren't as good as me. They didn't follow the rules nearly as good as I did. But man, the way they loved other people, they were so selfless. They didn't follow the rules well, but man, they really cared about other people's issues. And I began to realize, you know, this religious pursuit of trying to be a good religious person, it was mostly just about me. I didn't care that much about other people. I didn't care about other people's problems. Hey, if it didn't affect me, no big deal. Like as long as I could try to be the good person that I think I'm supposed to be, and the Lord began to reveal in me this deep sense of selfishness and self-righteousness. Man, the Lord, it was like he was just slaying my heart and ripping it open and showing me all these places that I wasn't quite who I thought I was. It all kind of came to a head. A lot of other things happened. I remember like my, my senior year of college had been going through this. I'd had some ups and some downs. My senior year of college, that was the first time that I ever really experienced depression. It was at the end of this dating relationship, but this got drawn out with this girl that I probably should have never should have dated in the first place. And at the end of it, I remember every morning I would wake up and, and no, no matter how hard I tried to be the religious person that I thought I was supposed to be, I would wake up and feel like there was this fog just hanging over my heart, this cloud that I could not get to go away. No matter how hard I tried to be the religious person that I thought I needed to be, it wouldn't go away. And I remember being so frustrated like, God, what else do you want me to do? Like, I'm trying to do all the things. I, I'm still going to church. I'm, I'm still leading worship. I'm still trying to be the good person and make the good choices. I've, I've tried to eliminate lust and pornography from my life. I've, I've tried to do, do all these things. And for some reason, there's still this cloud just hanging over my heart. I remember one day I'm driving to class and suddenly I'm just like crying for no reason. And I'm like a happy dude. I'm like, God, what is going on? Like, why am I crying? And one night I'm sitting at my house, none of my friends are home. And finally, I just have it out with God. I remember trying to pray, but feeling like I'm praying into a brick wall. And so finally I just start yelling. And it was on that night where I finally, for the first time, really let God have a piece of my heart. I said, God, what do you want from me? What do you want from me, God? What is the deal? And it was that night where I began to be honest to really let my heart open up to God the Father, that God set my feet on a trajectory. And on my journey over the next decade or so, what God began to slowly reveal to me was that it was not about what he wanted from me so much as what he wanted for me. You see, the problem I was facing was that the version of religion that I had been pursuing could do absolutely nothing for me because it was lifeless. This behavior and performance-based religion was dead, and I needed a living God, not just a dead religion. And the living God wanted my heart, not just my actions. Now, I don't know if you connect with that story at all. Some of you, that probably is a lot like your story, and some of you go, man, that's nothing like my story. But here's what I know, is that if you're here, you are looking for something. You are on a spiritual quest of some sort. 
And here's what I know. Nobody comes into a bar in Nashville on a Sunday night, especially the Sunday before a holiday, and thinks, man, I I cannot wait to get a bunch of religious truths that will do absolutely nothing to change my life. This is going to be awesome. Like, nobody does that, right? That's not why you're here. None of us want dead religion, and yet it's what so many of us settle for. And what we're going to read in Ephesians 3 tonight is this picture of what it looks like when the living God begins to encounter the human heart. You see, this thing called Christianity or following Jesus is not first and foremost about our behavior. It's about an identity-altering, heart-level, divine encounter with a love and a power that is beyond what words can describe. And so we're going to find Paul praying for his brothers and sisters in Ephesus because he wanted them so badly to understand this love. Look with me in Ephesians 3, chapter 14, or verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Jesus Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord out of Ephesians 3. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this prayer. We're going to examine Paul's reason for praying this prayer, but then I want us to see the what of his prayer as well. What is it that he's even asking for? And then I want us to see the how, of how this happens, of how God answers this prayer. And so let's look first at the reason. So Paul starts off right away in verse 14. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. It's like, okay, well, for what reason, Paul? What are you you pointing to for this reason? We have to back up to see what it is he's talking about. And so if you look back at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul actually starts chapter 3 the exact same words. He says, hey, for this reason, I, Paul, this is what Paul does. Paul kind of has like spiritual ADHD when he's writing letters. And so he often will be like, you know, for this reason, I, oh, squirrel. And then he'll start writing about something over here that's completely different. And so everything we looked at last week was actually a tangent. It was Paul getting ready to write this prayer. And then he's struck by this idea of being a prisoner for the Gentiles. And he starts writing this whole thing about the worth of the human soul, that it's great that he's in prison for them. And so he starts writing over here. And now in verse 14, he's coming back to his original thought, for this reason. So for the reason, you have to back up even further into chapter 2. He's referring to what he has just said at the end of chapter 2. And here's what he said. He said, listen, you guys, he's talking to the Ephesian Christians. He's talking to us. He says, listen, you are being built into a temple. You are being built into this place where the living God can come and dwell within you. You're being joined together so that you can be a dwelling place for God Almighty. Now, I think the reason that Paul is praying is because he understands, man, there is just absolutely no way for a group of people to understand and grasp this promise of God without God's intervention. I mean, just think about the absurdity of what Paul is writing. 
He's saying, listen, the, the living God, the God that is, is the king of the entire universe, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the all-loving, this, this incredible God wants to come and make his dwelling within you. He wants to live within you. It sounds ridiculous and hard to even take hold of, and it's as if Paul is going, God, I'll write this, but here's the thing. None of them are going to get it or understand it or even appreciate it unless, the Lord, you step in and do something in their hearts to help them grasp it. He's kind of like uh, King Solomon in the Old Testament. King Solomon was tasked with building this temple for the Lord's people. And the Lord told him, he said, Solomon, I want you to build this temple so that I can dwell amongst my people. And I love, there's this place in 1 Kings 8 where Solomon is reflecting on what God has just told him. And this is what he says in 1 Kings 8. Solomon says, man, but God, will you really dwell on earth? He says, God, the heavens... Even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built for you. In other words, he's saying, listen, God, if, if you were to try to inhabit the entire universe, even the universe would be busting at its seams in order to try to contain your glory. How in the world are you going to live in this building that I've built? And Paul is looking at the Ephesian Christians and he's going, God, how are we ever going to understand that you, the Almighty, want to come and live within our hearts? He says, God, they're never going to get it. They're never going to understand it unless you help them understand. And so Paul, wanting his friends, his brothers and sisters to understand the beauty and the magnitude of this promise, he hits his knees, which for a Jewish teacher was not the normal stature of praying. If you were going to stand, if you were going to pray as a Jewish leader, your normal posture would be standing. And Paul is saying, I'm hitting my knees because I want you to understand this. You know, I often wonder the same thing. I get up here to preach on Sundays and I wrestle. I've been wrestling with it all day today. I'm going, God, how can we possibly get this? I can say it over and over again. Hey, God wants to live in you. God wants to live in you. God wants to live in you. He wants to live in you. He wants to dwell in you. He wants to live in you. But my words have such limited power. And I'm going, God, how can I say it? How can I help us understand it? I feel this way when I sit down with some of you from our church, I sit down with men and women all the time, and I can tell in their hearts that they're struggling to feel loved by God. And I, can, I don't know, I just sit there and I look at them, I'm like, God, what words can I say to help them know that you love them? Or with my friends that are far from Jesus, and I go, man, God, I just want them to know you. And he just constantly reminds me, Aaron, if you want them to know me, you've got to pray and let me do the heavy lifting. And so Paul prays. And he cries out to God that he would be the one to intervene. And this is my prayer for us tonight. Whether you are a new believer, a non-believer, or a seasoned believer, my prayer is that God would be at work in your heart. He'd be strengthening you in your inner being so that Christ could dwell there by faith. This is why, this is the reason for Paul's prayer. Let's look at the what that he's praying. He says a lot of things in this text, and I think he's really praying for two primary things. I think he's praying that Christ would dwell in their hearts, and I think he's praying that they could come to know and understand the love of Jesus, that Christ would dwell in their hearts and that they would understand and grasp the love of Jesus. So look what he says, uh, starting in verse 17, he says, you know, in 16, he says, I'll pray that you'll be strengthened by God with power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I, I love this, this word to dwell. 
The word to dwell, it has a sense of permanence to it. Another Paul is not saying, hey, I want Jesus to come in and set up camp in your heart for a little while and then move on. He's not saying, I want, I want Jesus to come and rent out your heart like an Airbnb. No, he's like, I want Jesus to come and dwell, like live in, take up residence, abide in your heart. I was talking with Joshua Soloway this week, who preached this morning over at Hillsborough Village and he started talking to me about the difference that he feels when he walks into someone else's home versus when he's in his own home. And I started thinking about this. When I go to someone's house as a guest and I'm going to stay several nights there and I walk in and they show me their guest bedroom, I never walk in and go, yeah, this is a really nice guest bedroom, but I'm going to rearrange a little bit. I'm going to move the bed over here and move the dresser. You know, I got a can of paint in my car. I'm going to come and paint these walls. This color's not really doing it for me. Like I don't come into someone else's house and try to renovate. I don't do that. But man, when I'm in my own house, in the place that I live, the place that I own, the place that I dwell, then I feel freedom to do whatever I want. I can renovate all that I want. I can move the furniture around, paint the walls. I can change things how I see fit. And this is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians in my prayer for us, that God would strengthen us so that Christ could come and live in our hearts. And this would be the place where he lives, that he abides, and that he would have the freedom to rearrange the furniture of your soul to renovate your heart. You see, this is what I needed in that early journey of trying to be the religious person. What I needed was for Jesus to come in and begin to renovate my soul a little bit. You know, those things that we carry around, those things that we try to deal with on our own, our woundedness, our shame, our selfishness, our pride, our, our lack of joy, our bitterness, our jealousy, our anxiety, our habits, our hang-ups, all these things that we try to handle with our own strength. Jesus says, listen, I want to move in. <laughs> I want you to give me the freedom because, man, I can set your room up in an amazing way that will bring you freedom that you don't even understand. Will you let me renovate your soul? Will you let me live in your soul? And so what Paul is praying is that Jesus would have a level of ownership in our hearts, a level of ownership and residency in our souls. But here's the absurdity in that is that, as we've already said, like how can Jesus come to live in our feeble hearts? And I started thinking, so I love what Paul prays at the very beginning. Before he prays for Christ to dwell in their hearts, he asks that God would be the one strengthening their hearts through his spirit. I love this interplay of the Trinity that God through the spirit strengthens the heart so that Jesus could move in. And this week I kept thinking about like this, our hearts as these feeble human hearts where the God of the universe comes and lives in. And this is kind of a cheesy and terrible metaphor, but it's all I had all week. I kept thinking of those cheap plastic grocery sacks. I hate those things. You guys ever use those cheap plastic grocery sacks? You know, they always have a hole in the bottom. Junk always falls out of them. And you always have that overzealous bag boy that thinks he can fit more in the bag than he should. And then you get home and you're unloading your car and all of a sudden junk is all over your kitchen floor. And it's like, why did this guy think that he could fit three two liters of cantaloupe and a watermelon and a jug of milk in one bag? Like it's ridiculous. And it's all over the floor. This is what it feels like to say that Christ wants to come live in our human hearts. We are like those cheap plastic bags and we think, man, how in the world could Christ ever dwell within us? And what Paul prays is that God would strengthen our hearts. God does not want to give you more than you can handle. God does not want to overburden you. God does not want to stress you out. God longs to come in and fortify your soul so that he can take up residence and have the freedom to renovate your soul and to free you 
I was talking with a friend of mine. Uh, my wife and I have this really good friend. She's not a follower of Jesus, but she's been on the spiritual journey, and we've had the privilege of having front row seats of watching her on this spiritual journey. And it was a little while ago, she was at our house. This has been almost a year now. She was at our house, and um, she was sharing some things that she was learning on the spiritual journey, and she was just kind of humble, and she said, you know, I've just... I'm just coming to realize that there's gotta be just like one source for everything, like one source for all the life that I see and one source for all the good things on this planet that I see. And as she's talking, like my wife, Amy and I are like, she's getting it. Like she's beginning to see that there's this living God that, that is the one from whom all things flow. And I'm like so excited, but I can tell she's still talking about him as though he's some unknowable form. And so I just, I finally said to her, I'm like, hey, what, you're so right. Wouldn't you want to know him? And she says, she responds in a way that I just did not expect. She kind of says, no, 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 no. I would never presume to know something so incredible. Like how could I presume that something so amazing and so big could ever, ever interact with something so lowly as me? And what I realized in that moment is that my friend had a greater sense of awe for God and his bigness than I do but that unfortunately she had a limited understanding of his grace and his goodness and his love, this incredible almighty God that although he is so much bigger than her, that he would choose to move in and strengthen her heart so that she could have relationship with him. And this is what God longs to do for us in Christ. You see, God, through the Spirit, initiates by strengthening us and enabling us to be a habitable place for Jesus Christ, who promises to change us from the inside out. And I love what Paul says. He says, listen, I pray that God will strengthen you so that Christ can dwell in your hearts. And he gives this little phrase. He says, in faith. He says, I long for Christ to dwell in your hearts through faith. This is an important phrase because you see our temptation, at least my temptation is I hear this message about how God wants to free me and live in me and love me. And I immediately am like, ah, sign me up, God. What do I have to do in order to make that happen? And immediately God is going, you don't do anything, Aaron. I'm the one that initiates. I just need you to believe it. And this is why it's so hard to communicate and teach this truth is because I would love to give you all 10 steps to experiencing the love of Jesus in your life. But the reality is God holds it out and he says, I want this for you. I wanna do this for you. Will you believe it? You see, it happens through faith. I was thinking about that this week and I kept imagining the two wheels of a bicycle. I mean, the two pedals of a bicycle, excuse me. So my, my middle son, my, my five-year-old Torin, he is uh, learning how to ride a bike right now. And he can go, if I push him and get him going, he can ride and hold balance just fun. But man, that getting started is so hard, going from standing still to moving forward. And so I'm constantly teaching him, Torin, if you want to get the bike to start moving, you've got to put your foot on the higher pedal, push down on the higher pedal so that the lower pedal can come back up. And this week, it kind of hit me that this is the picture that Paul has given us. He's saying, listen, God, it will initiate with you. Do you want to know the love of Christ? Because what God would love to do is put his foot on that higher pedal and step on it, strengthening you in your inner being, in your heart. But what's going to happen is that other pedal is going to come up, and that is the pedal of faith. He's saying, will you believe that I'm at work? Will you believe and will you have faith that I'm able to do this in you? And so we step down on the pedal of faith. 
and then he strengthens, and then we believe, and he strengthens, and we have faith, and he strengthens, and we believe, and this is what the journey of Christian transformation looks like. It's this journey of faithfully and humbly receiving the unmerited grace of God. God initiates with strength, and we respond with faith. This active choice to lean into the truths of God versus the lies of my flesh. And so God longs to strengthen, and Jesus longs to dwell, and he just asks us to have faith. But here's the thing, you know, if, if we don't know this God, if you're here tonight and God is just an idea or a concept, or Jesus is someone you've heard about but you don't know him, I, I understand, like, it's kind of weird to think about inviting him to move into your soul and renovate your furniture. It's kind of a weird thing to imagine Jesus doing. I actually try to keep strangers out of my house from renovating my furniture. And so what Paul is going to go on to do is try to understand who this God is. Look at the next part of his prayer, starting the second part of verse 17. He says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Jesus Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I want you to notice here, Paul is not looking at the Ephesians. He's not looking at us and going, hey, if you'll just love Jesus a little more, everything will be all right. Come on, get your act together. Just, you know, encourage up some love. Just love Jesus more. This is not what Paul is trying to say. What Paul is saying is, listen, this is not about you trying to love Jesus more. This is about you experiencing the love that Jesus wants to freely pour out on you. He says, man, I just keep praying that you would know that the Spirit would just would show you just how wide and long and high and deep, how unfathomably good and endless and limitless is this love of Jesus. This description of high and long and wide and deep. It's this beautiful picture that Paul is just trying to capture. He's saying, listen, this love that Jesus has for you, there's no words to capture it. It's limitless. You know, too often we assume that everything has to have a beginning and an end. You know, we use this word love and we use it so cheaply, don't we? I mean, in one breath, I'm just talking about how much I love tacos and then I'm talking about how much I love my mom and then I'm talking about how much I love my wife and how much I love a TV show. It's like we have this one word to try to capture how we feel about such a variety of things and we connect it to a feeling. And in our minds, this feeling is something that ebbs and flows and rises and falls. But this is not the kind of love that Paul is talking about. I can't tell you how many young people I sit down with who say, you know, I don't know what to do in this relationship. When I first started dating this girl, I told her that I loved her, but I just, you know, I just don't know if I feel the same way anymore. And we think that love is this feeling that comes and goes, but this is not the kind of love that God possesses and that God longs to give us. This is why the Apostle John, one of Jesus' best friends, is able to write in 1 John 4. He says, listen, God is love. God is love. It's, it, it's not God is love with conditions or God is love when he feels like it. No, it's like God is love, the unchanging God, who he is in his nature is love. He was love yesterday. He's love today and he's going to be loved tomorrow. This is who God is, unchanging limitless, boundless love. And Paul is saying, hey, brothers and sisters, I want you to know this is the love that God has for you. You can experience it. You can know it. 
There's nowhere you can go to run away from it when you're in Christ. <laughs> this is what he says in Romans 8. I'm convinced that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, is that not amazing news? The love of the Father is not connected to your performance, brothers and sisters. The love of the Father, it is yours through Jesus Christ. He loves you with no end. He's crazy about you. He hasn't stopped being crazy about you. It's what David refers to in Psalm 139. If you've never read that, go home and read it. And you'll be showered with the love of God. David says, oh God, you've searched me and you know me. He says, God, where can I go from your spirit? How where can I go to get away from you? If I go up to the heavens, there you are. If I make my bed in the depths, Lord, there you are. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your spirit will find me, Lord. Not even the darkness can hide me from your love, Lord, because darkness is as light to you. You are that good. This is the bigness and the goodness of the God that we serve. No limit, no end. When you step into Jesus Christ, your identity becomes firmly rooted as a child of our Father, the King, and he longs to pour out his limitless love upon you. And Paul says, I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge. You know, being loved by Jesus goes far beyond knowing about the love of Jesus. And this is why Paul is praying, because I could stand up here all night and go, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. And you could know about the idea that Jesus loves you. But my prayer tonight is not that you would hear from some random dude that Jesus loves you, but God would actually come and help you to begin to experience that love. This is the way Paul describes it in Romans 5. He says that God, through his spirit, is pouring out his love into our hearts. <laughs> I love that. It's like God has this pitcher of, of water, of life, of love, and he's pouring it into us. It doesn't matter what kind of container we are. We can be a beat up, rusted out, holy bucket, and God is pouring water into it while at the same time patching us up so that we can receive all the love that he wants to give us. This is who God is. And Jesus says, or Paul says, I want you to experience it together with all the saints. You know, so often in our Christian journey, we try to make it this individual thing. We try to say, hey, this is just between me and God. This is my personal spiritual journey. You know, it's like, man, it, there is a, a, a place for a personal relationship with God the Father. But man, if you want to experience the power of God's love, then he has given us this family for a reason. I was reading in a book real recently, he was talking about just the triune nature of God, that God is Trinity, God is Father, Son, Spirit, like God is three in one, it's mind-bending, I know, but he's just this community, he's a communal God, he is the picture of love, and he says, we are created in his image. And this is what the author said, he said, the image of God is so thoroughly communal that we cannot experience the image of this triune God when we're in isolation. If you want to experience the powerful love of God, you need community, you need one another, I'm telling you, there's nothing more powerful than when you're carrying the weight of a sin that you know you need to deal with and you confess it to a brother or a sister and then you see the love of Jesus in their eyes <laughs> and you feel the weight of mercy and forgiveness as they wrap their arms around you and say, I love you. Thank you for sharing. It's powerful. It's one of the ways that God helps us to see the bigness of the love he has for us. So this is my prayer. This is my prayer for us tonight. My prayer is that God would strengthen each and every one of us out of his glorious power through the Holy Spirit 
so that all of us could experience the dwelling of Jesus in our hearts. And that together we might be rooted and grounded in love. And that we might come to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That we may be filled to the full measure of who God is. Now, how does this happen? I think it's more ordinary and more normal than we usually want to make it. We often have this image of this being some sort of like, you know, radical ecstatic experience where you start to experience the love of God and like literally you see heaven rip open and angels' wings are like hitting you in the face and there's heaven dust like falling everywhere, but that's not what it always looks like. You see, an encounter with God's love can be one of the most ordinary things and yet one of the most miraculous things all at the same time. I believe it happens every week when we gather in this place. As a pastor, I have this privilege of people come to me and they say, wow, like God was here. I don't know what that was, but God was in this place. I'm like, I know, that's his grace. It's amazing. Every week, people in this space, because of the grace and the goodness of God, get to encounter his love. I believe that this encounter of filling, experiencing the love of Jesus, it's that moment when a person who their whole life has felt like they are unlovable begins to believe that maybe God could love them. Oh, it's amazing. It's life-changing. I think it's that moment when a person who's always felt like an outsider suddenly begins to feel like they could be an insider, like they could belong. It changes their heart. It's that moment when a person confesses sin and is flooded by the relief that God still loves them. He's still for you. He's still with you. It's that moment in prayer when the light finally turns on with a person that has wanted so badly to experience God, they don't do anything different, but for some reason, through faith, they just feel the love of God pouring out into their heart. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. If you long for that, I promise you Christ longs for you to have it. There's no greater feeling, there's no greater experience and have an encounter with the living Lord Jesus. And we're gonna go take communion in a minute. And we're gonna pick up that bread, we're gonna pick up that cup, and it's just this reminder as we take it into our body that Christ is taking up residence in our heart. And if you are a believer tonight and you want to experience the love of Jesus, man, just share that. Pray with one another. If you want prayer, if you want prayer to receive and experience the love of Jesus, come pray with us at the Respond Band, and we'd love to pray with you. And in the middle of your waiting, just keep trusting, keep praying, keep knowing, choose love and choose faith because he's faithful and he's good. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're going, man, this sounds kind of cool, but kind of weird. It's like, that's all right. Like if you want to experience the love of God, the father, I would love to introduce you to Jesus. I come, we'd love to talk with you over here at the respond banner. We could pray for you. You can know the love of Jesus in your life tonight. As we get ready to go to communion, I want you to do something for me. I want you to look at the person sitting next to you. Look at the person sitting next to you. Everybody, go ahead. It's kind of weird. Just look at the person sitting next to you. You know, if you don't know them, that's okay. But here's what I want you to say to the person sitting next to you. I just want you to look at them. You want to say, you are loved by God. Say it. Come on. You are loved by God. Now look at the person on the other side of you, the person on the other side of you, and say, you are loved by God. Now, knowing that we are the family of God, knowing that we are loved by God and we are called to love one another, let's take communion and let's worship the Lord. Father, I pray 
Man, God, would you, out of your glorious power, the riches of your grace, the power of your spirit, would you come and strengthen us in our innermost being? Strengthen that part of us that is weary. Strengthen that part of us that feels wounded. Strengthen that part of us that is skeptical. Strengthen that part of us that doubts. Strengthen that part of us that feels unlovable. Strengthen that part of us that feels like a failure. God, would you come and strengthen us in our innermost being so that Christ could come and dwell in our hearts through faith. And would you pour out your love into our hearts as we commune with you, with one another, and as we worship you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.